Please join with me in prayer. Lord God Almighty, we approach unto Thee. We come boldly in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, before Thee. Lord, by the power of Thy Holy Spirit, which Thou hast given unto us. Lord, let us not treat the hearing of God's Word as something minor, something additional to our life, but as true food for our soul. Lord, teach us to love Christ more. Lord Jesus, we would see Thee as perfect, as all of our hope, all of our stay, all of our trust, would rest in thee and what thou hast done. Lord, speak unto thy people. May we all benefit from the preaching of thy word. Help this thy stammering and stumbling preacher to accurately handle the text, to apply it to the hearts of thy people. Help these, thy people, the sheep of thy pasture, thy children, to hear the word, to receive the word, and to be doers of the word and not hearers only. May their hearts be enlivened, stirred up, to love thee and serve thee. Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom, O God? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Lord, we believe Help thou our unbelief. Give us to know. Give us to understand, O God, who thou art, what thou hast done, that it might change us. Let us not walk away from this or any other sermon unchanged, but that we we would be renewed, be strengthened, given eyes to see and ears to hear. Stay the trembling knees, O God. Strengthen the weak hands. Straighten the feet that we we might walk in accordance to thy precepts and for thy glory with eyes set on Christ, with eyes set on thee. We thank Thee, O Lord. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The title of our sermon is Emmanuel's Titles. Emmanuel's Titles. Our text is Isaiah 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, 
the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Dear congregation, sometimes I think to myself and I wonder why so many churches are curious as to why their people come to sermon, they come to church, and they walk away unchanged. They walk away with no greater sight of Christ. They don't tithe. They don't attend additional services. They don't evangelize. Their marriages are falling apart. Their children have gone astray. Why do church leaders wonder at this in our nation? And why have they been pondering this question for so long? For when many people in this country go to church, which is slowly dying away because of pastors not standing against the quarantine laws unjustly given, when people go to church, they hear and see vapid imitations of the world. Vapid imitations of self-help methodology. D-list entertainment. Of course they don't walk away with a greater vision of Christ. Of course they don't walk away with more love to God and more desire to serve Him. Why should we wonder that the newest Avengers movie is more thrilling, more exciting, more to be delighted in than Jesus Christ when we present Him as something annexed to life to try to help you out? He's your buddy. He's your pal. And then at Christmas season, they all begin talking about the Incarnation. And they present us with a weak baby in a manger. Which that's part of his humiliation. But that's not all. Mm. When Christ is not central to the life of Christians, and he is not imposed upon the people who call themselves Christians as being central to their life, he will not be their life. And thus there will be no change. In New Orleans, in a Church of God church, I stood, just a few days old, after the new birth. And they were singing something. They were preaching something. And I felt strange. I felt a strange thing in my chest. Call me an enthusiast. I care not. I felt something strange within me, welling up. What was it? Worship! which I had never given to the triune God. I had never rendered worship to Jehovah. I was born again. I was made new. The new birth is not preached upon. It's not taught. It's not imposed upon the people. And it needs to be. Because Christ was not incarnate to leave us as we were, to be a cherry on top of a yuppie's life, to bring social justice Or any other foolish thing you can think of. He came to bring new birth. To make new creatures. New creations. In and through himself. To reconcile his people. To his father. To bring peace. Between God and man. 
That is why Christ came. And many people have grown up in church. They just think of Christ as an addendum to their life. And that fault, the reason why, is because of those pastors, those church leaders, who hold conferences on silly things, who preach silly nonsense because they want to fill up their church and stuff their pockets rather than preach the fullness of Jesus Christ to a dying world. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, there's some issues with him. But Richard Baxter, the great Puritan preacher, said every time he mounted the pulpit and thousands came to hear him preach, that he preached as a dying man to dying men and as though he would never preach Christ again, as if it was his last sermon. And yet pastors piddle their way up to the pulpit, to the stool or whatever they have, and talk about your best life now. If this is your best life, you're going to hell. This is not our best life. Christ is our life. No wonder Harry Potter, the Lord of the Rings, the Chronicles of Narnia, capture the minds of people. They're great stories. They have all, all aspects of things that make us human in them. They explore the human condition, friendship, struggle, battle, overcoming evil with good. But they are dim reflections of the truth. And then, when pastors talk about Jesus Christ and God and Christianity, it's little more than vapor. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to offend anybody. And now, this same thing, this seeker-sensitive, friendly, reaching out to the people, have people in your church no matter what, the church is seen as an outreach center. That mentality that was so popular in the 80s and the 90s has spilled over, mutated, and evolved into the social justice heresy that is taking the church by storm. It's the same thing. They are one and the same thing. There's no difference. You ape the culture at every stage. Because Jesus Christ's incarnation is nothing to you. Nothing. When it should be everything. It is life itself. Eternal life. And so we will look at these titles that Isaiah gives Jesus Christ. The Messiah who was to come. What titles did he give him? We will look at each in turn. First, he calls him wonderful. Wonderful. Secondly, he calls him counselor. Counselor. Number three, he calls him the mighty God. Mighty God. Number four, he calls him everlasting father. And fifth, Isaiah calls Emmanuel the Prince of Peace. These are the five titles given to the coming Messiah by Isaiah the prophet 800 years before his birth. First, wonderful. Wonderful. The first title given to the incarnate Christ is wonderful. Some translations and commentators throughout history, not just recent or modern, have taken this word wonderful 
with the following word counselor as wonderful counselor. Thus, a wonderful counselor, a a counselor that is wondrous in his actions and his deeds and his counsel itself is wonderful. Though we take no settled objection to rendering it as, as such, for it is true that God's counsel is full of wonder towards us, yet we think it best to take it as our translators have given, it being its own title, Wonderful. Emmanuel, first title, Wonderful. Jesus Christ is truly wonderful. Is he not? Dear Christian, does it not flow from the lips with ease and pleasure to say Jesus Christ is wonderful? Jesus is wonderful. Does not thy heart leap with joy? With joy. When thou hearest the sentence, Jesus Christ is wonderful. Does not thy heart Leap with joy. Is it not most pleasurable to tell Jesus himself, Jesus, thou art wonderful. To the redeemed, to the saved, to believers, to Christians, when we hear it, it is so. It is wonderful. It is pleasurable. It is delightful. It's full of joy to hear or to say those words, Jesus, the wonderful one. So simple, yet so profound. Now, what is wonder? What is wonder? The Oxford Dictionary defines it as a sense of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. And we can scarcely find a more apt description of Jesus Christ. He is special. He is set apart. He is high and lifted up. He's unlike anything or anyone else. Jesus is wonderful. He causes those who look upon him, when a sinner, when a human being sees Jesus Christ, they are brought to pause, to consider, to revel in his uniqueness and his splendor. Jesus fills us with a sense of surprise, mingled with admiration. He is beautiful, unexpected, In his demonstrations of mercy, that he should be merciful to sinners is unexpected. He's inexplicable in his person. That he could be both God and man in one person. When a Christian is asked, as we shall be, what makes Christ special? What makes Christ wonderful? She should respond. Just as when the bride in the Song of Solomon was asked, What is thy beloved more than any other beloved? We should respond, my beloved is the chiefest among 10,000. He is altogether lovely. That should be our response. And that is a true Christian's response to hearing the question asked, what makes Jesus Christ wonderful? What is Jesus Christ above any other God? What is Jesus Christ above your favorite car? He's chiefest among 10,000. Now, in what ways is Christ wonderful? He's wonderful in his person. In his very person. No one is like unto him. None are God and man in one person. None can say that they thought it not robbery to be equal with God. None can say that. And yet, give such demonstrations of meekness and mercy and love as Christ did. Of no one else can it be said, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
He was in the beginning with God. And he was God. Of none else can it be said. He is the eternal son of God. Begotten from eternity. Begotten, not created. To him is given a name which is above every name. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The end. To him alone was the honor given of being the redeemer of God's people. To him alone was given such honor. To be the head of the church, the head of his own body, the redeemer of his own body, his bride here on earth. Indeed, without him doing anything at all, without Jesus Christ ever becoming incarnate, doing any works, whether works of creation, providence, or redemption, even without doing those things, Jesus is and remains wonderful. He's wonderful in his person. He is God overall, blessed forever. Amen, the Bible says. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah, and this was an appearance of the Christ in the Old Testament, Manoah asked him, What is thy name, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? The answer given by the angel of the Lord was this, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret, Pela? Same word rendered wonderful. Why askest thou, seeing that my name is wonderful? He's also wonderful in his deeds. He's wonderful in his person, but he's also wonderful in his deeds. Not only is Jesus, our Emmanuel, wonderful in his person, in and of himself, without doing anything, but he has also graciously chosen to reveal and demonstrate his wonderfulness unto us men through his deeds of redemption and providence and creation. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. People ask you who created the heavens and the earth. You can reply, Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, created all things. Amen. All things. So the Bible tells us. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. And this fills the faithful, the believing with wonder, just as David said in Psalm 8, 3 and 4. He said, When I consider thy heavens, O God, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Throughout his life, throughout the life of Jesus Christ, and throughout his ministry, a constant series of wonders attended him. Constant. In his birth, his life, his death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus was wonderful. The angels, the wise men, the shepherds, even his own mother wondered at his birth. They thought it a wonderful thing. His wonder is seen in that although he is God and man in one person with two natures, different from each other, but united in him, he yet chose to take the form of a man, emptying himself of his natural glory and being born of a virgin. So too, Jesus' public life was nothing but a continued series of wonders. His baptism in Jordan was wonderful. The heavens being torn open. The spirit descending in bodily form as a dove and remaining upon him, resting upon him. His temptations in the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days, which is impossible. 
tempted of Satan and was able to repel Satan with the word of God. His doctrines and his miracles that he taught with authority and power, that he wrought many miracles, shows him to be wonderful. His transfiguration on the mount, when suddenly he is clothed in all white as a cloud overshadows them on the mount. And that voice comes from the cloud. This is my beloved son, hear ye him. Moses and Elijah appear with him. Truly a wonder. Truly a wonder. He was seen as wonderful in his death. Then an earthquake split the temple and the veil between the regular place and the holiest of holies. The holy place and the holiest of holies was ripped in two, torn asunder, that man may have access to the holy God through him. It was wonderful in his death. Think about it. That he, the eternal, uncreated creator of all should die at all is a wonder he being the prince of life the lord of life and of glory that he should die that such a one as that should die is wonderful it's a wonder to behold and think of what is more that he should die of his own will his own volition freely giving himself up and of his father's consent is a wonder to think of And that he died for sinners, even the chief of sinners. That he didn't just die, he died for sinners. That is a wonder. That is a wonder. And that by dying, and in and through his death, Jesus should procure life for us, attain life for us, abolish death, destroy him that had power of death, the devil And obtain eternal salvation and redemption for his beloved. Wonder of all wonders. Something that we stand amazed at. That's what wonder is. And he is wonderful. Could anything greater be told? Could anything more wondrous be heard or seen? Could anyone else be given the title wonderful? Methinks not. This word is usually used as an adjective to describe something. This word wonderful. It's usually used as as an adjective. But here, the adjective in the person of Christ is turned into a proper noun, a name, a title, wonderful. Wonderful. Truly, only Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us, our Redeemer, our Bridegroom, our Friend, our Lord and our Savior, Only of him can it be rightly and truly given. This title of wonderful. This name, wonderful. Now, we must ask ourselves. What are those things that we consider wonderful? Mm. What are those things that cause wonder within us? Do we truly hold Jesus in our hearts and in our minds as his title suggests? As wonderful. Something that causes wonder. Within us. Do we stand in awe of his person and in awe of his works? Are we amazed, even confounded, by his beauty and his glory? Dear congregation, we are so easily deceived by trinkets and sparkling, glittery things 
We stand in wonder at compelling stories, at movies, at music, at art, at food, good company, and family. We are filled with excitement over the release of a new gadget or a new cinema. We look to the heavens with awe and wonder in our hearts at the glory of the heavens above us. Yet, many of us come to the house of God. Many people throughout the nation come to the house of God with dreariness and boredom. We are passionate about the creature, but not the creator. How backwards we Christians have it. And I specifically say Christians, dear congregation, because of all created beings, we Christians have most reason and the greatest duty to delight in him who is wonderful. Of all created beings, we are some of those created beings as Christians, and we have most reason to consider him as wonderful. Most duty. Unlike any other creature, we have been redeemed from our sin. The angels that, that fell, they're not redeemed. They're not offered redemption. We, unlike any other creature, are reconciled to God, not just as God, but as our own Father. We are given the new birth. We are made new creations in Christ Jesus. We alone are given the very righteousness of God. Of any other creature, this cannot be said. We alone were dead and now live. Yet, we oftentimes are passionate about other things. Things of little value. Things that are passing away with the very use of them. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections. This is a command, an imperative. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. John tells us in 1 John two seventeen, The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth or liveth forever. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 7, Unto you, therefore, which believe... He is precious. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. There is no thing and no one more worthy of our affection, dear congregation. Dear believer, is Christ precious to thee? Is Christ precious to thee? Hast thou set all thy hope and delight upon him? Is he all thy hope and stay? Dost thou consider him to be wonderful, to be precious? Do all earthly joys and delights pale in comparison to him? These are questions we have to ask ourselves. Are thy affections, the things you love and care about, set upon Christ? On things above and not on things of earth? Dost thou hold him to be thy very life, as Paul says? Thy very life. Christian, dear Christian, consider thy Jesus, thy Savior, thy Lord, and thy God to be precious, to be wonderful. 
For he is both precious and wonderful. And he has demonstrated himself as such unto us. Examine thy heart, dear believer. Is it set on Jesus? Is it set on Jesus? Is it filled with wonder at the thought of him? Whatever we are engaged in on a day-to-day basis, whatever we are engaged in, and whenever we are engaged in anything, doing something, we should ask ourselves if we consider Christ to be wonderful, to be more precious, more captivating, more delightful than what we are currently doing. And thus delight in him through what we are doing. Such meditation will slay an army of temptations and sins. This is not to say that we should be morose, uncheerful. This is not to say that we should take no cheer, nor any delight in the good things of life. In the good things of life, good food, good company, compelling stories, a hike, creation, crafting and making things, music. That's not to say we should not delight in those things at all and be uncheerful when we come to those things. Far from it. Of all people, hear me now, of all people, we Christians ought to be the most joyful and the most cheerful in those things. Of all people, we should enjoy the good things of life most. For we know their true purpose and their true end. Namely, to relish in the glory of Christ Jesus. But they are a means to an end. Not an end in themselves. Now, my wife is precious to me. My children are precious to me. They often fill me with wonder and joy. But only because they are good gifts from my God and my Father in heaven. And any joy I receive from them, I am to view as a gift from God. As a gift from God. A shadow of the Wonderful One. A taste of His preciousness. Given to be used for His glory. To praise Him who is wonderful. The most precious. And we do this in gratitude to Him. Second, his second title is that of Counselor. Counselor. What does this mean? It means that God needs no one to teach him. He is the counselor of all, the teacher of all. He takes counsel in himself alone. None teach him. None give him counsel. He does all things after the counsel of his own will, Paul says in Ephesians 1.11. He possesseth all wisdom, And all knowledge in himself. He learns nothing. He knows everything. He is the possessor and the dispenser of all knowledge. Of all knowledge. Jesus Christ is the counselor. The counselor. This is his title and his name. And it is his rightly. Can only be applied to him. On earth... Both his followers and his enemies alike called him teacher. Called him teacher. And rightly so, for all wisdom and knowledge comes from him. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of the Father. The eternal Son of God. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 tells us. Colossians 2.3. And this is why Isaiah calls him counselor. Counselor. For he alone teaches men any spiritual truth. We can know natural things from observation. 
We can know things about the earth and how it functions. We can know things about medical science and how it works, the body. There's many things that we can learn, but we cannot learn or know anything spiritually without Jesus Christ. Those who wish to be taught of God must be taught by Jesus Christ. Must be taught by Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the eternal God, himself the eternal God, as well as his will, his commandments, power, and works, is revealed. In Jesus Christ, the eternal God is revealed to us. Jesus, as Colossians 1.15 tells us, is the image of the invisible God. John tells us that no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. John 1.18 Christ reveals, dear congregation, Christ declares and explains the everlasting God to us. The eternal word of God was made flesh, we read in John 1.14, and that he then dwelt among us, so that we might behold God's grace and truth, and thus behold and understand something of his glory. He is called the word of God because he is our counselor, our teacher. Now in times past, God had spoken through creation. God had spoken through the prophets and the Old Testament scriptures. But now, in the new covenant dispensation of the covenant of grace, the full revelation of God's person, God's will, and work is made manifest to all in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul says to the Hebrew believers in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, me at different times and in different ways, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God has spoken to us authoritatively, finally, in Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches us who God is, and what God has done, and what he shall do. And Jesus manifests God's love for the children of men. You want to see God's love for us? Look to Jesus. We must come to God through Jesus Christ, dear congregation, and through him alone. Remember, he taught the people of Israel, the Gentiles that were in Israel at that time as well, in Palestine, and his disciples on earth concerning the kingdom of God. You read in the Gospels, that's what he's teaching on. And he now continues to teach us through his written word, through his written word, and his operations through the ministry of pastors, of evangelists, and of teachers. Let us be sure, dear congregation, that we come to no one else to be taught of God. No one else. We must learn at the feet of Jesus, choosing the good portion as Martha did in his word. No pastor, no theologian, no teacher, no parent, no church council can or should take the place of Jesus as our teacher. They're not mutually exclusive. We learn about Jesus through the means of Faithful church 
attendants and faithful preachers in the church and pastors, theologians. But we must still judge what we hear by the word of God, from which the message should be brought to us. However, we judge not as critics, but as Christians. We discern. Christ, dear believer, has not left us as orphans, but has given us his holy scripture as a guide and a rule of faith and practice and the Holy Spirit to regenerate us and cause us to understand his word. All teaching must therefore be brought to this word, to the word of God and tested. Anything you hear taught. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, Paul writes, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Thus, whenever we are taught of men, in a sermon, in a book, in a lecture, we must test it. We must test it to see if it is the teaching of God. And we do this by going to the scriptures, placing it up against the scriptures. Isaiah even says this, In the previous chapter before our text in Isaiah 8.20, he says, To the law and to the testimony, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Christian, ask thyself, in every circumstance you are in, in every condition that your heart may be in, ask thyself, what would Christ have me to do? What would Christ have me to believe about my current condition, about my next step, about how I should think about this attitude that I have, this feeling that I have. What would Christ have me to do? What doth his word have to say concerning this situation I am in? To the law and to the testimony be your cry. To the law and to the testimony. Say to yourself, I shall do nothing nor make any decision until I have retreated to the word of God. Until I have sought the great counselor, Jesus Christ, the one who reveals God's will and truth unto me. He hath not left me without a word, but has given me his own word. Mm. To it shall I go, and I shall seek him for the interpretation. Thus, we see that Christ is the only rightful receiver of this title, counselor. He is the revelation of God and of God's will towards us men. Third, third, the next title is Mighty God. He's called the Mighty God. The Mighty God. To no man can this title be rightly given than to Jesus Christ. He is the power of God revealed. The very power of God revealed. And Jesus possesses all divine power in himself. He is co-equal with God. His entire life testifies to his being the mighty God himself. His miracles, his healing of the blind, the sick, the lame, his raising of the dead, his teaching with authority, his casting out of demons, his walking upon the water, his prophecies, his resurrection from the dead. These all testify that he is the mighty God, that Jesus Christ is the mighty God. Unlike the mere human priests of the Old Testament who ministered 
to God on behalf of the people for a time, as we read in Hebrews. Offering bulls and goats. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He's God incarnate, the mighty God. And he has sacrificed himself for our sins once and for all. No more sacrifice being now needed for us Christians. Now, only of the mighty God could it be said, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That could be said of none but of the mighty God himself. No mere man can do this. No mere man could do this. By his own power and his own authority, Jesus Christ laid down his life as a sacrifice for his people. Why? It was his name Jesus. To save his people from their sins. Just as by his own power, the mighty God, Jesus Christ, also created the cosmos and all that is within it. He can fully discharge our sins, fully pay for our sins, fully absolve our sins, do away with them, place them as far as the east is from the west in his sight, because his blood is the blood of the mighty God. Perfect in holiness, righteousness, and power. So, dear congregation, let us not forget that the babe in the manger of Christmas is the king upon the throne in heaven. The infinite became infant in the incarnation, but the infant grew to the full stature of manhood, fulfilled all righteousness, died for us on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, where he now sits interceding for us on our behalf, And guess what? He shall return as a conquering king, a conquering lion of the tribe of Judah to claim what is rightfully his and do away with every manifestation of evil and sin and dwell face to face with his people. He holds all power and Jesus Christ, the mighty God, possesseth a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. What if this was preached by men far more eloquent than me in churches across this nation? Because of the pandemic, because of the lockdowns, because of the mass mandates, and because of churches being required to follow made-up rules, because of churches being required to fall in line with certain mandates governors unjustly set upon them. It is estimated that 10%, and this is just current what they think, this thing's not over, that 10% of people that were regularly attending church will, will no longer regularly attend church. Because they've just realized they could stay home. Watch a sermon on a video. Mm. Go to church online. The estimate current of people that were attending church somewhat regularly, were interested in church, were not opposed to church, that shall now never step foot in a church, they're saying, is much higher than that. Somewhere estimated between 20 and 30% of those people shall never again step in a church. 
Never again. But what would it matter if they did? If the sermons, if the preaching, if the message, if what the church and the members within that church stood upon was not this kind of vision of God, what would it matter anyway? Good. Stay home. You can find better self-help books at Barnes & Noble or on your Kindle at home. But if this is preached, that Jesus Christ is the mighty God, revival will come to this nation. Dear congregation, we must think of him. We must come to him, not just as some powerful man who wants to help us out, but as the mighty God himself, able and willing to save to the uttermost all who come to him in faith. What does it mean, the uttermost? Full salvation. Complete salvation. There's none too sinful, none too vile. The chief of sinners was already saved. So as Spurgeon would often say, when people would say, well, I'm the worst sinner in my sight. I'm the worst sinner there is. There's no way God could save me. There's no way that Jesus' blood could save me. I'm too bad. He would say, well, Paul said he was the worst sinner ever and he got saved, so I guess you're at least second worst. To the uttermost he can save. Every sin. There is no after reckoning with thee, Christian. None. Though you sin now, still in your saved, regenerate state, when you come face to face, when thou art glorified, there will be no after reckoning with thee. None. Christ has done it to the utmost. When we come to Jesus, we have to do with, when we come to God, we have to do with God and the person of Jesus Christ. As Thomas We must bow before Jesus Christ and proclaim, my Lord and my God. Not my buddy who helps me out. Now the papacy is a mess, but this just shows how much of a mess the papacy is. Survey taken a few years ago in Italy for the Catholics. Who's the seventh person the Italians call upon in prayer? When they're in a time of trouble. Jesus Christ. He's the seventh guy on the list. Seventh guy on the list. I wonder where he is on the list with us. Where he is on the list with most evangelicals. Do we go to figuring it out on our own first? Or do we go to Christ? Now when we... Know that we are going not to just some man who can help us, a saint who can help us. But to the mighty God, this gives us much trust and comfort, dear congregation. When we come to Jesus Christ, we are not coming to a mere man who intercedes for us with God, but to God himself, the eternal Son of God who intercedes for us with God his Father. Thus, when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray reliant upon his power, When we ask our Heavenly Father as Christians, through Jesus Christ, for those things which we need, we know that we are asking for those things that we have need of from the only one who can give them to us. From the only one who can help us. Take heart and faith, dear believer. Fourth. The fourth title he has given is the Everlasting Father. Jesus Christ is the Everlasting Father. Now, we cannot take, we cannot understand this title 
to mean, as the oneness heretics and the Unitarians do, that Jesus is the Father. That's not what Isaiah is saying. He's not saying he is the Father. In the Trinity, there are three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three persons are one God. The Father is not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. Nor is the Son the Father or the Holy Spirit. Nor is the Holy Spirit the Father or the Son. Therefore, we must understand this title of the Incarnate Son, Everlasting Father, in a different way. In relation of the Godhead, the Son is one with the Father, and the Father is in the Son, as Jesus Christ himself says in John chapter 10, verse 30, and other places. Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father, but is not himself the Father in terms of the Trinity. He is God as the Father is God, and he is one with his Father in essence and in purpose. But we can also understand this title in another way. This is how many of the best commentators take it. Christ, being the creator of all, remember all things were made by him and through him, without him was not anything made that was made, Christ, being the creator of all things, is in a sense the father of creation. The father of creation. Christ, being the author and finisher of our salvation, is thus the father of our salvation. He's the father of our, of our salvation. He is the fount of our salvation. He's where our salvation comes from. Christ is the eternal God. The father of eternity, as the Hebrew literally reads it. His purposes of salvation are from eternity. He is the savior of his people from eternity. And thus, he is the father of their salvation. Remember, in the redemption of believers, of us as Christians, Jesus is said to be their father. In Hebrews, we we read that those whom Jesus saves are given to him as his children. As his children. And because he is their savior from the foundation of the world, as we read in Revelation, from eternity past, he is thus believers' everlasting father of their salvation. The everlasting father of their salvation. Now, do we come to Jesus as the author and finisher of our salvation, dear congregation? Do we look at our sanctification for comfort? How holy we are, how good we've been as Christians, how much progress we've made in the Christian faith. Do we look, do we look there for our comfort? Or do we look to the one who is the father of our salvation and of our sanctification, Jesus Christ? Do we point others to Christ, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Savior of those who come to him in faith? Do we point to them as the only fount and Father and source of salvation? Let us see him, dear congregation, all the more as the foundation and the completion of our salvation, the one who brought it into being, as it were. Last title, the Prince of Peace. Christ's last, last title is the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. He's its king, its ruler, its author. And this is why the angel sang at his birth, On earth peace. On earth peace, as we looked at last week. Peace has come to men in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
And we looked in depth at this last week, so we'll, we will merely touch on it this week. He brings peace between God and men. Paul writes in Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, we have no peace with God. None. Until our sinful nature, until the sinful natures of our hearts are both vanquished and renewed, we remain at enmity with God, dead in trespasses and sins. So in salvation, in regeneration, our sinful nature is renewed. We're given a new nature. In Christ, the warring parties of man and God are brought to a peaceful state, a state of loving familiarity. Secondly, we have peace between God, or between men and other men in the incarnation of Christ. In Christ, believers are now at peace among themselves, with one another. They are accounted as brethren, one in Christ. Any other designation or classification is satanic deception. Satanic deception. So when you have the white church and the black church, like it's so popular right now in the Southern Baptist Convention... In the PCA, that's satanic deception. There is, we are one in Christ. Thus, therefore, let us live at peace with God. Live at peace with God, dear Christian. This application is important. Every act of sin, every act of sin is a declaration of rebellion and war against God. And it is not only wicked, but contrary to the new nature which we have been given. It makes no sense, even. It stands at odds with reality, if we are Christian. Because if we are Christian, we are at peace with God. We are in a compact and a covenant of peace. Him towards us, and we towards Him. Therefore, it is the height of confusion, and the height of of abnormality, to be engaged in acts of hostility towards him with whom we are at peace. It's abnormal. He is our beloved, and we are his. Should the husband aggress his wife, or the wife her husband? Would this not be contrary to nature and to covenant? More so with our prince of peace. How can we sin against so loving and so kind a Savior, dear congregation? This is what we have to think about when we're sinning, when we have sinned. There's only forgiveness with Christ, but that increases sin's sinfulness. The Puritans often talked about, in fact, wrote entire books on the sinfulness of sin. When we see Christ as the Prince of Peace, And our salvation, the one who brings us to peace with himself in love, makes us children of his father, co-heirs with him. We will see how true the words of Ralph Venning are, the Puritan, who wrote the book, The Sinfulness of Sin. These are harsh and a little vivid, but very true. Quote, sin is the dare of God's justice. The rape of of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt 
of his love. That's what we have to understand that we are doing when we engage in sin as Christians. We are daring his justice, raping his mercy, mocking his patience, sliding his power, and hating his love. Christ's love exposes sin's sinfulness. Let us often then consider these titles of Christ, dear congregation. Each is profitable, and each is glorious. And each of these titles tells us much about our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The incarnation, of which we've studied for four weeks, shows us that these titles are not just simply titles to be looked at, to be studied, to be thought about. But they are titles which are our inheritance. They are our inheritance as believers. Jesus is wonderful to us, whom he has saved. Jesus is our counselor, who reveals all truth and grace to us. Jesus is our mighty God, delivering us from all of our sin, all of our enemies, and all of our calamities. Jesus is the everlasting Father and source and finisher of our salvation. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace with God and man. A frequent meditation on these titles of Jesus Christ, dear congregation, would flood our hearts with love to him who loved us and would strengthen our hands with power to serve him who served us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we come before Thee. We adore Thee in Thy titles, in Thy person, and in Thy work. Jesus, help us to see Thee as precious, the most precious thing in our life. To adore Thee, to love Thee, and to trust Thee. In Jesus' name, amen.